This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects. And you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and thanks for joining me and for all your support for the show. I heard from a few of you this week about how much you're enjoying the podcast, and a couple of people even said they were binge listening on road trips, which is super cool. I love that. Please subscribe, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click that five-star rating and leave me a review. Not a lot of podcast apps have a review feature, which is too bad, but it's something I hope that developers will add in the near future. But if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, which is most of you, just take a minute to write a review, even if it's just a sentence or two. Each rating and review helps boost the reach of the show, and it helps more people discover it. Also, for those of you who requested Horsepower Heritage decals, they're all in the mail, and I'm officially out, but I'm going to reorder. So if you asked for one, again, you have my thanks for being a loyal listener. Okay, enough housekeeping. My guest today is Kip Cypress. Kip is one of the most humble guys I've ever met in the car hobby. He rolled out the red carpet for me and my crew, and we spent an incredible evening in his warehouse, surrounded by everything from a Ferrari 330 GT to vintage British motorcycles hung on a wall to a row of the most immaculate 50s American cars you've ever seen. Kip is soft-spoken, but don't let that fool you because he is very enthusiastic about cars. I do have to warn you that we had one challenge, which is that Kip's garage also houses his collection of vintage neon signs, which were all turned on, of course, what else would we do? And the power running through the building as well as the buzz of the neon made it hard to get super clean audio, but it was worth it because the neon was incredible. So anyway, if you hear a little buzz or an occasional pop, that's the reason why. By the way, you also need to go check out the YouTube video of this episode because I promise you'll be amazed by the cars and the signs and the chrome and the colors and the sheer size of it all. It's close to a football field of car heaven. And with that, I give you my interview with Kip Cypress right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick. If you're into classic cars, you know one of the oldest complaints in the hobby is that too many cars get put away and never driven. They're all in private collections and no one ever sees them. Well, today I'm surrounded by probably some of the most famous and iconic cars in history. And the great thing is that this collection is 100% driven. And the man behind it is Kip Cypress. 
Kip, thanks for having us today. I'm glad you're here. Is my makeup just right? <laughs> I had my hair done yesterday. Kip, some collections have a focus, whether it's competition cars, uh, a, a particular designer, a particular brand. Your collection doesn't seem to have a focus necessarily. That's what you think. Okay, so tell me about it. The, my collection is a driving collection. Maybe we don't have the most rarest or most sought after cars, but we have the most usable and all these cars drive and run and I drive them and I and and to me that's the most important thing because I I enjoy the actual usage of the cars I like to go down the roads with them I don't want them I you know I love looking at them there's some cars that are not very driver friendly and after a while they become a piece of art that I love looking at but all the cars if I can't drive it I don't want it I, I have friends that have some fantastic collections just the most incredible things you know uh whether it's just you know cars with incredible history or real low production numbers or uh you know or themes you know i i uh, uh i like uh crossover cars there's a de tomazo here that's a you know it's ford it was a predecessor to pantera it's a, a car that was made by uh um, de tomazo which was a argentine argentinian uh, race team and they wanted to get on the production lines uh with uh, ford and so they were collaborating with ford and they they were putting ford engines in their cars and, and the cars were built in italy yes so uh modena i think but yeah but neatly but but i call it a crossover car and i have um i've got a dual Ghia. The body by Ghia. It's got a, uh, a Hemi motor in a 1957 dual Ghia. I've got a Sunbeam Tiger, you know, English English car with a Ford motor in it. Yeah. Right. I, I like uh, I like crossover cars. Those hybrids or crossovers, yeah. yeah. One of my favorite crossovers is um, the ESO. Griffo. The, ESO. Well, actually, the ESO Revolta. Uh huh. That's a. So did that have the the uh, the Corvette motor in it? Yeah, yeah. 327. Um, they're pretty big cars, mm-hmm. and they're really they're, they're, their styling is not for everybody, but they definitely have that. Well, you know, they're a big GT car. I mean, you can imagine bombing across the country in one of those. They're, I think they're pretty stylish. Do you have a Cobra? No. That's like the classic, you know, I, crossover, I have a, right? A Superformance uh, Daytona Coupe, but a Cobra is on my wish list. I, I, I've made a list. And sticking to the list, a friend of mine, that's, I, I learned that from him. He goes, if it's not on his list, he says, well, something's got to come off my, the list then if I, if, I, if I get spontaneous and buy something else. But I really need to stick to the list because there's so many great cars out there. And, you know, you, you want to play with different ones. And, you know, I, I can't afford to just go buy whatever I want. So, you know, I kind of I save my little piggy bank and I go when I'm ready and I, and I decide what I'm going to pick. But my list consists of... There's about 10 more cars on my list that I really want. And, and I think w- uh, going through that, when I get probably to the 10th, they'll maybe have another little list. But I really, I'm really trying to stay focused on that list. Give us a couple that are on the list. I'd like a, 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 an Auburn, like a 36, like Bowtail Auburn, uh, late 20s, early 30s, uh, maybe a four and a half liter Bentley. A pre-rolls. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I'd like to have a DB four or five or six and i'd like to have a cobra a small block cobra i was going to ask do you want the the 427 or the 289 289 yeah i I like the 289 cobra for sure i was talking with one of your guys earlier and i asked him if kip 
told you you could take any car home tonight, which one would it be? And he had a hard time picking. He, he finally picked that 50 Oldsmobile back there. And then he asked me the same question, and I said, well, let me see here. I would take the Shelby GT350. So, Kip, this all started with, what, a 69 Chevy Camaro? That was my first car. I was uh, 17, 18 years old. I was a muscle car guy, and it was like, boy, I just wanted to have one of those cars so bad. And then once I obtained it, at first I was into street racing. And then uh, when the cars became more classic, because uh, this wouldn't have been uh, quite the classic car yet. It was still kind of a hand-me-down. And then as they became more of a classic car, then I began to restore them. And then as I got more into classic car collecting, I realized that the restoration that I thought was good continually got better. And I, I, so it's been restored uh, quite a few times. There were plenty of Camaros still on the road from that, that time period. Those yes. late 60s Camaros, they, they were kind of, I remember when they were everywhere, really. Yeah, there was nothing. All I wanted was a super sport. So I would go in the VIN. So I would look, and there were so many fakes. You know, right. they would, people would, all they had to do is put Super Sport on it and a couple of details. And, and a lot of people had, in, back then, they, you know, this was in the early 80s, they thought they had Super Sports. So you'd go in there and you'd look at the VIN and you'd I actually figured out how to determine that it was. And then the funny part about it is here we are today, numbers matching, uh, all the options, all the stuff is really important, you know, colors. Well, back then I just wanted to have a Super Sport. Then after I got the car, I took the original big block that was in it and threw it away because it wasn't cool. You wanted a small block, you know, so uh, it just goes to show you that how far we've come and what's now important with cars and the way we've changed to, uh, to collect. That's why I think, you know, you can never go wrong with originality if you're going to keep a car. So many of them were highly modified. And then we went through that crazy pro street era in the 80s where everything had to be kind of like neon and big fat wheels and tires how about the paint jobs when that was looked like an exploding rock absolutely (laughs) you know the the 80s pickup trucks and they would do all the graphics on their trucks and and actually today some of those uh old older like boyd builds of those cars they're actually becoming they're coming back a lot of times though with collecting the production numbers are so high so when you have production numbers, especially um, with a uh, you know a, a Mustang, a Camaro, a, a, you know a Pro Street pickup truck, uh, you know cars that were from really the '70s on, the economic sense of restoring a car, bringing a car back when there's so many on the road, it gets in your way of the the, the collectability. The '70s trucks are getting pretty popular, you know, in the in the late, late '60s, the C10s and. You know, you look, okay, how many of these are, are left? And because a lot of them, once, if it was a high production, once enough of them have been melted down and destroyed, then now it becomes more rare. That's a great example because, like, the, the F100s and C10s, I mean, a lot of them were just beaten. I mean, they, they, they were work trucks. Original mint ones are going to be rare. It's like anything, but especially with pickup trucks. Yeah. And then the high option ones, too. That's the. The C10 is like it's exploded. It really has. It's amazing the values yeah. that that you know yeah, the when, prices are getting. And when and when I was a kid, a lot of guys had a C10. It was their dad's hand-me-down, and they drove that. They drove those cars, and a lot of times that you know, they they turned into work trucks. I was I, I'm an old soul, and I 
I would find myself gravitating towards older older guys that I would hang out with that were that really knew a lot about cars, and you know I've I I still do. I mean, most of my friends are are uh, quite a bit older than I am, but they've got so much knowledge, and I just try to suck up everything that I can and learn from these guys. And and what happens along the way, it kind of gets back to when you start crossing over and learning about other manufacturers. Um, and other kinds of cars, whether it be all the way into, like right now I'm really getting into a lot of the European cars. But from where I've come, European cars were not even, in, they were nowhere in my uh, radar. So I'm learning everything is like new to me. And it's actually really fun because it's nice to learn things about the European cars. It's like starting all over. You know, you, you get to the point where when I was in muscle, you'd know all about muscle and you learn all you can. You're a sponge. And after a while... You start learning stuff that just doesn't even matter anymore because it's just it's too much. But now going into getting the European cars and not knowing about them, how they were manufactured, who manufactured the specialties and what you want and what's cool and what wasn't, it's fun. Were you one of those guys that was turning wrenches and that, that was part of what was great about the hobby to you or was it more about the collecting? Well, I'm... I'm an uneducated guy. I, uneducated, I, didn't, I never went to college. Matter of fact, I got kicked out of community college. But when I was in high school, I at one point was able to finagle my way into having half my classes uh, auto shop because <laughs> I was so into it and I couldn't wait to, you know, no, I, always, I, I, I would have like C's and everything else and then, but I would have A's in all my auto shops or my mechanical classes. And it's actually really too bad today that we don't have more uh, vocational training. vocational classes in these schools yeah. because when I had, I can tell you, I had plastics, metal, electric, uh, wood, um, yeah, auto shop. You know, and you think about all those little traits and things, these young people today, they don't know the first thing about any of that stuff. And, you know, it, that stuff does impact you when you're young. And when you're exposed to it, and it's the simplest little thing, whether you're cutting a piece of wood or cutting a piece of tin or learning how to solder something, you know, it, it, it changes you for the rest of your life. I'm surprised at, at all the guys who are figuring out how to work on the computer systems in cars and, and all, of the, all of the electronics. I mean, there's guys out there who are doing crazy stuff. They're, they're applying that yeah. same kind of do-it-yourself attitude to, to cars today. Yeah. There's a guy on YouTube who buys wrecked Teslas and rebuilds them. And he's got a really good following on YouTube. He's got an amazing YouTube channel. Now but imagine that guy in 30 years when they were on to something even bigger. Yeah, right. You know, like, hey, look, this was the first guy that was doing Teslas. But, you know, when you mentioned, you know, bringing technology, you know, when we're, I still like to get in and I build, you call them customs, uh, not necessarily hot rods, but, you know, customs, I, uh, um, not Pro Street. More of a resto mod? Not a resto mod, but, you know, um, I've got some stuff like uh, uh, there's, a, there's a, in the shop here, there's a Mercury, uh, like an old Merc, uh, a uh, Rocket 88 Oldsmobile. And uh, those cars are mapped with fuel injection, but they're old technology. So they're original engines, they're um, uh, original drivetrain, but yet uh, they're, they're mapped with electronic ignitions and, and uh, fuel injection. And, and, you know, that's in order to do that, it has, the car has to be put on a computer and they have to map it, you know, and it, it's like, hey, at this RPM, we're taking this much uh, air, this much fuel, and it takes the technology. But 
we can actually make them run better, more dependable, the guys that are able to do that kind of work. These guys are making more money than you, you would make at a dealership. You know, if you think about, it's like, why are those guys making so much? It's because it comes back down to type person, that, the coach worker that can go out and do metal fabrication and has the techie mindset go, hey, I can build this car and build this engine, and then I can integrate the modern technology of fuel injection into an old motor where you can't even see it and make this thing run way better than it ever did. That makes me think of... A lot of these old guys that are, you know, close to retirement now, and, and a lot of them have, have left the scene, but guys that you would send your gauges to, or mm-hmm. guys that would do nothing but rebuild SU carburetors or Carter carburetors, or, you know, they, they had those little specialty shops, and they would get all the business because they that was the guy that you, you know, that everyone counted on. Yeah, and, you know? and those guys that were pretty affordable back then, are, have now been replaced with guys that are younger, not not kids, but younger guys, and there's less of them because they obviously learned it from their dad or, or somebody. They worked in a, in a an operation that they when they were a kid, and now they're in their 40s or 50s. And here these guys now have moved up the line, and they're getting big dollars. You could take your degree and not do as quite as well as you can now in the automotive restoration business. It's kind of like even, you know, you look at plumbers and electricians today. You know, we've got so many people that have gone off to college that they were saturated with educated people, and we have not enough people that can change a tire. And let's talk about that because you've really done well for yourself. I, I, was work, I used to work on boats when I was in high school. I, first, it was a boat washing. You know, wash, I'd wash boats and make money that way, and then I got a little better and I could start doing more mechanically mechanical stuff on boats and uh, servicing them and I, I actually became I'd made more money than a lot of my buddies in high school and I, I didn't mind working I worked a lot of hours and I just it, there was no such thing as uh, as quitting time I was just a oh I can get this done and I didn't care what it took and I finished high school and I started in uh, in a college and I uh, I wanted to be a boat captain and my dad was, uh, he wanted to get into real estate. And, and so I was working with my dad a little bit, but I really wanted to be a boat captain. I found a maritime school to get my captain's license. And I thought, well, how am I going to tell my dad I want to be a boat captain? Because he's not going to accept that because there's been an order in my house. You're going to college because no one ever went to college. So apparently I had to be the first, right? But it wasn't where I was wanted to be. When I was supposed to be in my uh, community college classes, I'd be driving down to my maritime class. Uh, trying to get my boat captain's license, and uh, me, I just want—I fi- I planned it all in my mind. I was going to be a boat captain during the day, and a bartender at night. And I was going to live like a king, you know. That's all <laughs> I wanted, you know. And and so I get called into the. Uh, my grades are just in the toilet. Yeah, get, because you haven't been to class. Because I haven't been to class, and the, I remember the administrator says, "She says, Mr. Cypress, I think your time is better spent elsewhere." And I said, "I couldn't agree with you more." <laughs> so I had to go home and tell my dad that I quit quit school, and I think he realized by that time I was a uh, I was going to do my thing. And so I did get my my captain's license, and then I started working on boats. But I stayed with the real estate side, and then again to the mechanical minded side that I really you picked up when you're a kid, because my dad wasn't mechanically minded. We would we were buying a lot of properties, and and they needed to be renovated, and so I went off to 
uh, got my contractor's license when I was younger. And I, next thing you know, I started fixing houses. Then I started building houses and building homes and building projects. You know, forward it 35 years, here we are. So the real estate business, number one, is complicated, and there's a lot of ups and downs. In, in real estate, there's always, you know, there's there's highs and lows. And you got good good market times and bad market times. And I went through the 89, 90 recession, which was not a big thing because I was working for others. And then when we get into 2006, 2007 recession, um, I'm running my own show and, and uh, things are on the downside. And uh, the hardest part was I had to liquidate some assets to survive. And I had some fantastic cars that I had to say goodbye to to keep the lights on. But you know what? At the end of the day, uh, got a good family and, and great kids. So, Do you have like maybe an overview of what entrepreneurship has meant to you? I mean, it seems like it's come natural to you in your life. I, I know that I'm really fortunate. I'm a lucky person. There's a lot, lot of guys out there that, that work harder, and, but you, know, you struck something. My kids both uh, graduated uh, USC. I was at a, uh, a commencement speech, and Larry Ellison from Oracle, he said something that really struck me, and it was like, it was like wake up. He said, I was talking about all this life, how he got, had gone through, you know, uh, his parents wanted him to be a, in medicine, and he had wound up in Northern California, and, and he had his down, ups and downs, and, and he, he got hooked up with um, Steve, Jobs. Steve Jobs. And, uh, and anyway, he, he was very, found himself to be really good at computer programming. But he said that he really didn't enjoy what he was doing. He did it because he made money and he was good at it, but it wasn't something that he really wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, now Oracle's a you know, gazillion dollar company and he really doesn't like employees and he doesn't like the pressure. And he's really, he had felt like he had not really enjoyed any of his career and it was not what he wanted. And he wound up with a ton of money. During his commencement speech, he said, I've now realized the message I want to give to you kids that are listening to me, it turned out that it's not, it's not that you enjoy your job or you're happy with your job. It's that you're happy you did it. That, that struck a chord with me. It was like, you know, it's, you know what? It's really true. It's not maybe you know, everyone wants to have that dream job. I want to do whatever. I want to be really passionate about what I want to do. And it's got to make sense to where I really love it. No, it doesn't. You do what you got to do to get through and you make your living and you'd be happy that you did it when you after it's over. And by the way, mistakes, you have to make mistakes. If you don't make mistakes, you're like, I think you were telling me the other day. It's the only way I learn. Yeah. Yeah. Dumb guys, you know, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. This is a, <laughs> the, 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 the mistakes are the best way to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Failure is an awesome teacher. Isn't it? There's a lot of tribalism in the car hobby. So you're either a Chevy guy or a Ford guy, but you kind of broke out of that mold. Yeah, I broke out of that mold. I hang, I hang out with a lot of uh, Huntington Beach car guys, and, and uh, a lot of them are uh, the 70s now, they're 80s, and, uh, and I've been hanging out with them for 25 years. And you know, when I came on to the scene here in Huntington, um, I was into just general motor cars. I didn't want to see anything else. And then the older you are in the car hobby, I think you're more uh, open for crossing over. It seems to me like the younger guys 
um, you know, when they first come on to the collecting scene, they only stick to what they first learn, and, and then they know it, and then they, they, they stick to it. But every manufacturer had a point in time where they were king. And whether it was uh, a, a Ford, a Chevy, a Mopar, whatever it be, there was a certain time that, you know, a certain year, a certain make, a certain model that that, that was king. You know, and you look at the, there's different points where Corvettes were king. Uh, I like glamour cars. Um, the glamour cars are really interesting because they were constantly trying to one-up each other. You had, uh, from the 50s, the Chevrolet up against the Fords. Um, and when you came into the 60s, when things were really becoming more luxuri- lux- luxurious versus performance, we were really getting into luxury. Uh, the, the Cadillacs, the Lincolns, the, the, uh, the Oldsmobiles, they were constantly trying to one-up each other. And so every year it was more and more. Let's talk about these glamour cars. So what we're talking about is roughly about from about 1957 up to about 1963, 64, right? Where the big three manufacturers were always trying to outdo each other, whether it was performance or luxury or, or how much chrome they could put on the car. What is it about them that you really enjoy? Getting into the glamour cars is the bigger I've gotten, the easier I fit in. <laughs> the muscle cars are, are a little bit tighter and, and and they're a little harder riding cars, and and uh, also you know you, I got that out of my my system when I was younger. But the, the glamour cars to me, they're, they're just beautiful. You look at the lines and the and the the details and the and the chrome for days and the long panels. It, they're just they're they're so pleasing to the eye, and uh, but they're so oh yeah they're yeah, impractical they're, for they're sure totally impractical. Uh, it just to, just to restore one. I mean, you might as well go buy yourself a, a, a entry-level Ferrari. I mean, you, you should really think about when you're restoring a car, the, you know, where you're going to be at the end of the day uh, when you're going to restore one. Because a glamour car restoration is a lot of times as much or more than any expensive European car. So let's talk about the cars that were that are right here behind us. We've got a 1960 Cadillac Eldorado convertible, triple black, right? We've got a 61 Lincoln Continental, 57 Cadillac Eldorado Bierritz. Yes. And then next, a 57 Pontiac Bonneville. First year of the Bonneville, right? First year. And a rare, a rare low production number. It was interesting because all of them were fuel injection. And they were all, there was mainly two colors. Uh, you had, they were all basically the... Uh, well, there's kind of an a, off-white, it, right? It, yeah, there's With, a, like it, an ivory white. Right. But it's an off-white. Um, it, but they had a, either a red or a blue uh, inserts in the interior. Right. And, that, there, and there were 620 or something of them made. And there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of missing VIN numbers when you go through it because, you know, in order to get those things uh, in production, you, you had to get 500 of them built. And so there's a, there's a lot of missing, missing VIN numbers. So was there really 600-plus made? It may not have been. You yeah. know, in the registry, I think there's about 50 of them, but that includes the ones in junkyards and everything else. On the road, maybe there's 20. I don't know. Yeah. And then you've got a 57 Chevy Bel Air convertible, black with a black top and a red interior and it's a fuelie again like you said the rest of them are fuelies yeah. too they, these are like uh, benchmark cars of the 50s and 57 was was there was a really breakout time you, you know uh, that that's so you know inclusive of you know Pontiac being part of General Motors and Chevrolet 
you had the the fuel injection the they'd come out think about it they'd come out with a 283 uh cubic inch motor where they were matching up horsepower to cubic inches for the first time and then they plopped on to the fuel injection units later on but just it was a breakout time it was a performance really hit with that 283 motor so you found it in the bel air that bel air is a low low horsepower there was a low horsepower and a high horsepower that one's a a, a low horsepower but um and the Bel Air is really an iconic piece. It's it's there's so many of them out there. Production numbers were rather high, and a lot of them have been restored. And a lot of guys that that collect them now are are, are leaving the hobby due to age. So it's they're they're actually a declining value car. But there's it's, it is an iconic car. You know, you look at all the old movies. There's always a '57 Chevy in it, and it's it's a pleasing to the eye to a lot. Of, for so many people that haven't seen one in a long time, so it's it's a nice, neat car to have. The fuel injected Corvette would have been their performance, true first real performance car for um, Chevrolet, and then um, Pontiac, which was a step above. It was like Lincoln to Ford, you know, uh, Lincoln's version. So uh, Pontiac, they had the the fuel injection unit inside the Pontiac, which was really uh, a rare bird. Yeah, and the GM divisions really furiously competed against each other at the time, too. And um, even though there are similarities, they, they were all doing their own thing. Is there any preference with you between Ford or Chevy? Not so much, yeah. no. I, I, I grew up a diehard Chevy, and then, then I, I have Fords and Mopars. And as far as the Mopars, the muscle cars go, they, they were very interesting because it was like build the biggest motor and put it in the lightest pile of crap you could put together and but do killer colors on it i mean think of it even today it, my daughter when she was a kid uh her first car was a jeep srta jeep the uh, cherokee i guess right yeah and uh and so it had a hemi in it and so and says and she's a really good kid and she's she never got in an accident one time she and but she loved that car and boy that thing hauled ass and and so she graduates college, and her parting gift is like, "Listen, you've been you got your college education, you got it all down. Um, here's your, your parting gift: is I'm gonna get your car. What are you? What do you want?" She goes, "I want um, a Land Rover." So we get her a a, um, a brand new uh, Land Rover, like an LR3, or and it was about six months down the line. She comes to me and she goes, "She's got a, her big job now. She's working." And she goes, "Dad." Would you be okay if I got a different car? I go, what's wrong with the car you have? You know? She goes, I miss my Hemi. <laughs> <laughs> so she says, she, she goes, I found what I want. I'm like, oh yeah, what's that? She goes, I want a Dodge Demon. I go, honey, it's a Dodge Demon is a thousand horsepower car that is rare as hell and you couldn't get one if you had the money so why don't you set your sights and i'm being and i'm being sarcastic set your sights lower you know they have a this thing called a hellcat yeah she goes away she comes back dad i want a i want a purple hellcat and i'm like got a big job so your car buy yourself a hellcat whatever okay so we're up in in monterey so there's this purple Hellcat. It's got a thousand miles on it. I'm walking down the 
line looking at the cars in the auction and, and there it is and and she goes berserk and she's with us and she goes this is it this is it this is the car so we wind up buying that car she sells her land rover gets a change check and she's got her uh, purple hellcat and she drives it today and I, and I get in that car and it's pretty darn impressive your car fascination is rubbed off on your kids what well my you? daughter my son yeah, Jerry's out. He's he he appreciates the, appreciates them. Kip, I know that you're a guy who is not about keeping this collection to yourself. What do you like most about sharing it with others? Okay, well, the first thing is, I'm gonna quote a good friend of mine, Russ Lyons. He said to me one time, this a friend of mine. He goes, "These aren't your cars. They're just on loan. They're gonna be someone else's cars one day." And that really struck me. And when people come to the car collections, there's a lot of car collections that where the collector is like, oh, no cameras, no nothing. Why? That You've got something that is fantastic that truly it's yours, but it's not yours. It'll be someone else's one day. But but you've got a piece of history and, and a beautiful piece of art that deserves to be shared with others. And so it doesn't matter if it's a... a a Mercedes or a vintage Mercedes or a Ford, whatever it be. It's really important that you share it. And not only that, it's your responsibility in the car collecting hobby to try to promote it. Because if we don't promote this hobby and keep this hobby um, uh, attractive, we're losing the audience. And, and for those who are in it for the money, in a sense of like hoping that their collections maintain their value, well, then you, you should care about an audience because if, if you're going to hide that car and not allow the rest of the world to see it, no one's going to know it exists and it'll never be in demand if it's not, not known to exist. Yeah, and there's a lot of collections out there that are under lock and key. and you it's, just, just, it's a shame. Cars disappear for decades. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Yeah. yeah. They don't come out, doesn't drive around. It's in, it's in, a, it's in, a, in a box. It's being hidden for the next owner to bring out one day, hopefully. When people come in and see the collection, are they focused on maybe cars that they know? And what happens when when they sort of when you introduce them to a car that they really haven't had exposure to before? Well, I, I really like to try to pull people from you know, if they're setting their ways on a certain car. Um, say it's a it's a Lincoln, it's a it's a it's a Mercedes, it's a Porsche. I try to really get them to open their mind because it it was quite liberating to me when I started crossing over into other manufacturers and started enjoying other cars to show them a different car you know hey you you, you came here uh, maybe it's the Cadillac Club let me show you this Lincoln you know let me show you this little Porsche and and it, at first there's there's definitely you, you get a there's some people that that They've gone their whole uh, uh, hobby of just being focused on the specific manufacturer. But then when I, if I can peel them off for just a moment and just introduce them to something else, listen, car guys are car guys. And if you're in the hobby, you appreciate it. You appreciate the finish. You, you pr- appreciate the workmanship, the, the uh, intricacy of, of all the, you know, the different kinds of manufacturers and cars, whether you're into that manufacturer or not. So when you start taking a guy that maybe is in, into Porsches and never saw past the hood of a Porsche, and you show him a Lincoln, and you go, "Look at this Lincoln. This was 
probably the biggest pile of crap ever made because it was so over-engineered. But look how much they did and look at the craziness and look how ahead of, they ta- ahead of their time there were. And you get the guy to go, yeah, and he starts kind of looking at it. You know, he does a little resistant at first, but then they relax and you start showing them more. And then the next thing you know, the guy's at a car show where there's different kinds of cars and he's got his buddy and his buddy's a Porsche guy only maybe or whatever it is that they're into. And he goes, hey, look at that Lincoln over there. <laughs> Come on over. I got you. And he shows his buddy a few things and the guy's like, when did you get into Lincoln's? But the whole thing is you're spreading it, yeah. you know, and, and, and so it doesn't matter what kind of car it is. I like to show people other kinds of cars because it's really, um, it, it's awesome. Yeah, for me, I like the fact that you look at a couple different manufacturers, maybe maybe the car's the same model year or at least the same era, and you notice a different approach to the same engineering problem. The other thing is there was a time when you could tell at a distance at night what kind of car was going down the road in front of you or what was coming at you from the other direction. And now it's like virtually impossible. Yeah, it doesn't hold today, does it? No, they're all the same. I remember I felt, I actually felt a little bit embarrassed for myself. I was alone in my car and I thought, oh, look at that Mercedes coming. And you know what? It wasn't a Mercedes. It was a Hyundai. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, it's not, doesn't say anything about me. It says a lot about where the industry is, you know, the sameness. But it's also that the industry has that sameness. You know, Jay Leno likes to say, he, he makes this point often that, 1967 was the last pure year for automotive design. And after that, a lot of regulations came into play. And they were tying the hands of the manufacturers. And I noticed that there are very few cars in your collection that are like post-1975 or so. I, I, I do. Um, they're not necessarily all here. Right. I, have, I do collect a little later model stuff. Um, Stuff but, like from when you were, uh, like you, you were telling me about that 944 you were kind of interested in. Yeah, and, and there's also, um, I loved um, uh, late 80s Mercedes, like, uh, you know, the 560s. When I was a kid, if you had a 560, like 80, you know, 86 to 89, those were only doctors and attorneys that had those cars. Oh, yeah. And uh, and, I, and to me, I look at those cars and go, wow. And then when I was in, in high school, it's like, you know, if you could afford a Camaro, yeah. Oh man, you were you were king, you know. Absolutely. That IROC Z. Oh, later man. on. Yeah. 19, 1987 I remember so many times I went to the the dealership and I was like, "Oh, man, I went back and forth. I just can't I can't afford the payment. It's going to be like, you know, 400 bucks a month and how am I going to swing this? You know, you add up the insurance and everything else. It's like, God, it's like $700. There's no way, you know. Like, now you look at an IROC Z today. Does it hit you the same way? Because for me, I look at it one and I go, "Wow, that's really a pile of crap." Funny, but no. Really? I, and I actually I till just recently, I found one that had like 15 and I I found a 1989 IROC Z with 15,000 miles on a convertible. And I had it for about 10 years. I I think I paid 20,000 bucks for it. And everyone was like, what do you want that for? And I go, well, it just means so much to me. And I think it's the neatest thing I've ever seen, you know, why, you know to find a, find a time capsule because no one really had bought those or wanted to collect them yet. And and I had it for about 10 years. And, you know, when I went and drove it, it was it didn't give me the new exciting feeling that I get from driving some of the older cars that weren't in my radar screen. Right. But I still see, I look at that, that car today and I go, wow, 
to me, I love it. And you know, you, you were you touched on something. You know, the new cars are getting to be, uh, you know, real modern, and and you know, you can't tell one from the next. That's just you and I, because there's these young kids today that do get every little thing, and they're picking up all the different specs. And and you mentioned uh, Leno. There's I um I'm I, I've got a lot of good friends with on the Peterson Museum, and I and I interact with it, and I. I do some stuff up there uh, with the the Peterson, and there's a group called the Checkered Flag. It's a fantastic little club at the Peterson, and we had a, a club event, and, and and Leno and a couple other uh, big collectors were up there, and it was talk about the future of collecting and the values and cars. And one guy gets up there. I'm not going to name names, but uh, he one guy he's up on the panel and he goes when do used porsches become collectors collector cars and he's kind of laughing like a big shot you know not that he's not and i'm sitting in a crowd and i heard it didn't think much of it but then the kid behind me gets up and probably about 30 years old and it, it offended him and he said well first off the last year of a uh, turbo Porsche where you could order everything this way, this way, whatever. And that to me is a really special thing. And he went off on all the reasons why a late 80s Porsche is so important because it was important to him. And it, it struck all of us like, you know what? The younger generation below us, they're, they're coming on. They're going to come on to these things. And, and, they, and, and there's important things that are iconic to them that we won't care about because it's not as rare to us as it is to them because they might have been the kid in the back seat or the little kid that was looking at the guy that bought that car when it was new. Yeah, they're just looking through a different set of eyes. I mean, I think most of us are nostalgic for cars that were built sort of when we were teenagers or cars that were starting to become classics when we were teenagers. I mean, for example, like who would have thought that a lot of the Japanese cars would become collectible? And yet, here we are, right? I mean, look at the explosion of JDM cars mm-hmm. uh, coming into the U.S. That's a whole new scene. But a guy that's in his uh, 60s and 70s doesn't even uh, tickle him at all. No. Uh, me, I have a little bit of interest. But the generation behind me has a lot of interest. Definitely. And if that's what they're into, awesome. How do you find your cars? And is the hunt an important part of the process for you? Because a lot of guys, they're into the hunt. Once they find the car, they sort of lose interest. Well, it's, it's a culmination of stages. You first identify the car that you want that you're looking for. Or maybe you're not looking for it because you thought it would never be obtainable. And then there it is, and you strike, and a lot of times there's remorse after that, and and but then there's excitement. But for me, most of t- most of the cars I have, I've had to build because every time I buy a car, you know, the smart way to buy a car is buy it done and buy the best. And if you can, you should. But uh, it, that's really hard to find. You know, there's so many. Um, uh, car flipper dealer guys out there that are you know they put lipstick on them they make them look good and they send them off and and uh, then you get the car and you pay a lot of money for it and you realize well there's a lot of flaws in this thing and then you're not happy so I find myself most of the time 
either buying a really good car and then bringing it to a higher level or starting with a good car that needs everything and then doing it from scratch. And I'm always into the cars for way more than they're worth at the end of the day. But there's a sense of satisfaction and I really enjoy it. That's part of my hobby enjoyment. Some guys like buying their cars um, and some guys like building the cars. And I like doing I like building the cars and I like using the cars. Um, buying it, no, you know, buying it's the hard part because you got to swallow the the terrible tasting pill of pain for it. But I, I really enjoy the cars and I love looking for the, you know, hey, this part is like really rare and we need it's missing or we need it. I I just thrilled looking for it. I love hunting for it. What do you mean? I can't find that part? Are you challenging me? I'll find that part, and I don't care where I got to go to find it. We're gonna find it. So building them, how, if you're building them, how important is it to you to kind of maintain the original spec on the car? Are you, are you a guy who's not opposed to color changes or whatever? Or I, it's, it's more important to me today than it was in the past. So if I'm restoring a car today, I really want it to be, I, I found that when the car was built and it was built in a certain way, and delivered that way, it was probably the the best way because they did look at all the other options that we may think, hey, make the change. So I really love the originality of the way the cars were and in their original state because that's when I think when you look back, they're timeless at that point. Whenever you alter a car, you put a higher performance part on it or you put something different that wasn't on the car. And my opinion is you're time stamping that car. You you build a hot rod and you put a a crate motor of whatever the latest and greatest was. Well, it's a timestamp. That that motor was made at a certain time. So in ten years down the line, when there's a better crate engine, and I look at that car, I go, well, that's a ten year old car. Restoring a car is a huge undertaking. Every manufacturer is different, and guys specialize in a given manufacturer. So how have you gone about finding the right people over the years to do the work for you? I never have one guy view the whole car. You know, I like generally. Um, I use a a common engine builder that is more of an engineer that will be the same guy that probably has built in this warehouse probably seventy five percent of the motors. But if I get into more of a specialty motor, like if I'm in a Ferrari or a, or a, you know something that's that's odd, um, it might need to go to more of a specialist. But um, so I generally have a motors built by a motor guy. The paint and body is done by the painter guy. And then you pick your specific assembler. So if it's a, uh, if it's a, a glamour car, I have got someone that's really good with glamour cars and muscle cars. But if I'm going into hot rods and customs, I got a, uh, somebody that I really enjoy working with. He's fantastic. Um, and then if it's a specialty car that it's new to me, um, um, like a like a Mercedes or something, then I'm going to go outsource to uh, to somebody that I'm going to search around and find somebody that's really good with that with that car, and and I'm going to uh, you know contract and work with them in, on the build and the reconstruction of it. How do you find those guys in the first place? Though is it mostly word of mouth from your friends or? I yes yeah it's word of mouth friends and and you get bad luck you know some guys are uh, you know uh, paint shops are can be very difficult. They can be, they're on sometimes and they're off on others. You know, you can, 
do uh, several cars in a row with one guy and then does fantastic and then all of a sudden the the workmanship fades out you know and you don't have as much good a luck and it's expensive it's you never come out on the right side financially on them but if you can get it done the way you want it it seems like it's a lot of money now but when you do it and you do it right and you're satisfied with it um it's not much it's not as much money down the line when you look back you know it's like i'm glad it's done and it's the way i wanted it I know you want to keep the cars as authentic as possible, like you said, the way they were born. But inevitably, there's a few little things that can maybe improve drivability, especially with fuel formulations that we have now and things like that. Are there any little tricks that you, that you like, for example, like electronic ignitions or anything like that? There's a, a real simple, uh, easy um, fix and that is take the load off the motors. And I've been on a lot of cars I'm known to, I've got some boxes, a lot of boxes up in the rafters of uh, gearboxes and transmissions. So, uh, you know, I'll take a, it's not uncommon for me to take a later model or a, a more modern transmission and put it in place of the original. Because what happens is I get better, you wind up with better gearing, the engine's working less, so I can, I can utilize the original motor and keep and not work it so hard and it's, so when you're when you see me uh, running down the road in a 61 galaxy and uh and I'm, and I'm doing 80 in it and the rpms are like you know 1600 or something like that and the motor's hardly working it's because i've got a you know a, a, a better a better uh, gearing system in it because right. i think that's the really the best place to to make an alteration to be able to run the roads that we run and not beat the devil out, devil out of the cars. And you don't see that. And you don't see it. That's and, but t- it's important to keep the original so the next guy, if he ever wants to put it in there on a PRS, he can. Yeah. So do you go with a fairly late model transmission or is it... Grand Nationals. Yeah. Uh, the Buick, they had that, they came in, they were running those 200R4s. That's a really great transmission for the automatics so you can use a 200 r4 and, and they've got it they can build these 200 r4s now to take a thousand horsepower and you've got basically a lower first gear and overdrive it's mechanical versus the 700 r4 was electronic um, i like that for the automatics and i even i even have been known to slip those behind some uh fords and uh <laughs> and cross cross it up right if I, i'll cross them up myself can't and, see it yeah and then Putting a five-speed gearbox versus a four-speed into a car—that's also a, another way to do it. You know. Do you have any cars with that Tremec five-speed in it? Mm-hmm. How do you like it? Uh, it's it's good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's good. It's it's the answer. You know. Yeah. Hey, even in the foreign cars. Yeah. You know, um, sixty-seven uh, Sunbeam Tiger. I was really contemplating on slipping a five-speed in that, and I thought, nah, that's a car that's really—it's a—it's a—it's a two, the Tiger. And it's a really rare car because it was uh, it was at the end of the production of the Sunbeams and and so it, it, you had Chrysler had bought I guess Sunbeam at the time so you have a Chrysler emblem on the side of it you've got a Ford engine and you've got a a, a, a Sunbeam body you know on so I left that one alone but I was gonna I was really contemplating changing that because of the drivability because yeah. I, I like to go on drives I like to do rallies and and when you're gonna go do a thousand mile rally. You know, fifth fifth gear is nice. Is there a favorite rally you've done, like a experience 
experience that that so, stands out? So far, the uh, most incredible rally I've ever done was just magical. Was I went to Israel, and I did the Holy Land 1000. It was a the the rally happened in 2016, and then they did it in 2018. And I don't think it'll return. Um, but we shipped our cars to uh, Israel. There was about 100 cars in it. It was fantastic. Wow. We went. I did 1,100 miles around the entire country of Israel, and it was it was it was really magical. And I did it in a, a 1964 356. You know, in Israel, everyone thinks it's a desert. It's not. It's right. it's, it's beautiful. It has, uh, you know, there's big green mountain hillsides, and there's uh, there's beautiful uh, uh, white sandy beaches, and then there is desert, but uh, it's dry. Uh, you need. I you, uh, we were constantly hydrating ourselves because you get dehydrated really fast in that weather. But it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful, and uh, it was the right car to bring too. Probably a lot of good camaraderie on the fantastic on the trip. Met some unbelievable, you know, people the, from all over the world. All over the world, and uh, on these rallies, you meet some really great people that that gravitate you to other places. I, as a matter of fact, on that rally, I met a really neat couple of people that I, I'm still pretty pretty close to, and they live in Switzerland. I've met some fantastic people that, that uh, you know, when your interests are very similar and you're mechanically minded, you're, you're into the same things, it, it's easier to become and meet more people and, and, and friends with people. And, I, and I've got some fantastic relationships. The, um, uh, the, the Peterson Museum has been really fantastic for meeting a lot of people, uh, the face of that place, uh, Bruce Meyer, is, is fantastic. And he's, he's like a really dear friend to me. And, and he's introduced me to some fantastic people, other collectors that just like feel like some of these guys I've known my whole life. It's almost like when you haven't seen an old friend for a long time, but it's the kind of person that you're, you're close enough to that you guys pick up like, like you saw each other yesterday. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same thing with car people, you know. I mean, um, a, a perfect stranger that has the same make and model car that, that you might be driving that day. You could pick it up right away, and I love that about the car yeah. hobby. Yeah, and, you, you know, and strangers, you say strangers, some of these rallies, you wind up, uh, I've, there's some, a lot of people back east, the other side of this country, that I only see on rallies. I, I have no connection to them. With with any club or any friends, it's just they happen to be on a rally, and then it's like you know what? That's the same couple we met on the rally when we were on the East Coast doing our, our different rally or in the Midwest somewhere, and then all of a sudden you know it's like it's like hey we're buddies now you know I've seen yeah. you on a, a rally or two and and you get to know them and you know switching numbers and and uh, it's yeah it's, it's yeah it's cool to see a it's great face. connecting you know? great connecting yeah I love it. Join me next week for part two of my interview with Kip Cypress, where we talk about a few very special cars in his collection. That's going to be in-depth on each car, so don't miss it. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.